Okay, snakes. What's up with snakes in the Bible? Do you consider yourself a person of faith? Maybe if you're not a person of faith, like you're not quite there yet, or you're just kind of checking it out, you're looking over the fence, so to speak, at what all this is about, you might be happy right now as I start this message uh, and say, well, I'm not sure I'm a person of faith. So I want to ask for those of you who consider yourself a person of faith, here is what Jesus says. If you're a person of faith, Mark 16, go into all the world and preach the good news. I like that. That's very good. Good news is good. Verse 16. Anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved, okay? But anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. Well, I believe, so I'm feeling good about that. Verse 17, here's where things get a little sticky. These miraculous signs will accompany those who believe. Okay, if you're a believer, here's what will accompany you. They will cast out demons in my name. Okay. They will speak in new languages. Okay. They will be able to handle snakes with safety. What is up with that? Do you know that some churches actually handle snakes? I mean, we joke about it today because when people visit the church, we say they like to sit all the way in the back on the very end, just in case we bring the snakes out. Because people, even though very, very, very few churches do this in the United States of America, people tend to, for some reason, know about this because it just grabs our attention. Matter of fact, ABC News, just a few years ago, did a piece on a number of churches that like to handle poisonous snakes. And in, in the piece, they're featuring one pastor and they're, you know, got this whole story and all this kind of stuff. Well, by the time they go to air the story about him, he had been bitten by a snake in a church service, refused medical attention, and he died. Why do they handle snakes? To prove their faith. Like Mark 16 says, so are you a person of faith? And if you are, do you handle snakes? Because it seems as if you should be able to handle snakes if you're a person of faith. Okay, Luke uh, Luke 10, this is what Jesus says. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Oh my gosh. You picked a great day to be at grace. (laughs) Can you handle snakes? Will you handle snakes? Are you a person of faith? What are you going to do with these verses that talk about, they talk about snake handling? Do you believe the Bible is the word of God? I mean, I personally do. I think it's 100% the word of God. Do you believe that we should take the Bible literally? I mean, personally, I do. I think it's the literal word of God. I think it literally means what God intended it to literally mean. Do you? Are you a person of faith? I mean, I don't see many churches that handle snakes. But the word says that if we're a person that believes, we should be able to handle snakes and we should not be afraid because they won't harm us. Okay, now let's jump into Colossians. But before we read the passage that we're going to read today, we just got to get into the right headspace before we start talking about the powers of darkness, right? So, When Colossians says, as we covered just two weeks ago, our theme verse, Colossians 1.13, God rescues us from dark powers. God brings us into the kingdom of light. When I hear that, everybody, my head goes to a certain space. But when they heard it, their head would go to a different space more than likely. Because when they think about being rescued or redeemed, they immediately think of Egypt. Because the story of Egypt Cast a huge, it's like the main narrative story of the entire Bible, how God rescues us. God rescues people 
from the kingdom of darkness and takes them out and puts them into a kingdom of light. God rescues us from dark powers. That's the story of the deliverance from Egypt. And it is the main biblical story from start to finish. Genesis is about creation. And then the books of Genesis and Exodus, they're tied together, everybody. And then you get the story of decreation in Exodus and then a recreation or a restoring or a renewing or being born again. So it's Genesis, creation, Exodus, decreation, and then finally in Exodus again, a recreation. That story is so big and it's in their minds constantly as they're reading the Bible. And it should be in our minds too. It is so important to understanding what the Bible is so desperately trying to say to us. Now I want to read you something uh, from Jonathan Sachs. This is about how important the story of the Exodus really is. Through a long and circuitous route, the story of the Exodus eventually came to influence not only Jews, but Western civilization as a whole. In the 17th and 18th centuries, through such figures as John Locke and Thomas Jefferson, it gave rise to a new vision of freedom. It told of how a people might liberate itself from oppressive governments and construct a society in which all men are created equal, possessing inalienable dignity and collective freedom. It set forth a narrative never surpassed of the human drama as the long journey to redemption, not in heaven, but on earth in the structures of our common life. No story has had greater influence in inspiring revolution or evolution towards a just and humane society. It is the West's great meta-narrative of liberty. Now, everybody, it is so fascinating to me that you can listen to two different people or two different groups of people, and you'll have one group that will look at the God of the Exodus with total disgust, like who in the world would want to believe in the God of the Exodus? That is a terrible, mean-spirited, ugly God. And then you'll listen to a whole other group of people who will cling to the God of the Exodus, particularly people who are living in oppression. They will cling. They say, we feel valued. We feel heard. We feel loved. I could go on and on and on about the things that some people say, lifting up the God of the Exodus. So much has been done for them. But I'll just, I'll sum it up with Dr. King, because the African-American community has talked so lovingly, so hopeful about the God of the Exodus. Dr. King, in his final sermon in Memphis, the night before he was murdered, the very next day, quotes from Deuteronomy 34, and he associates himself with Moses, the original snake handler. He associates himself with Moses. He says, I've been to the mountaintop and I have seen the promised land. Now, why would Dr. King associate himself with the great biblical snake handler, Moses? Okay, with that being said, with now our minds are in the right headspace, they are thinking about Egypt, the Exodus, the serpent, deception, 
Let's read our passage for the day. Colossians chapter 1, 15 to 21. It is a poem, a famous poem in the Bible, and it is absolutely amazing. It sums up who Jesus Christ is. Here we go. The Son, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. I'm not going to go far into this, but I just need to stop for a second and say something about firstborn. Firstborn in the Bible means supreme. It means above and beyond all lover things. It means number one, because... I know I got a visit one day by Jehovah's Witnesses and they said, well, Jesus was created. He, he was born and they quoted this verse right here. It's not what it means in the Bible. It means to be supreme. That's why the supremacy of Christ is brought out in Colossians. That's not what today is about, but I just wanted to mention that. Okay. Verse 16. Here's really what I want to talk about. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, or powers, or rulers, or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things are held together, like a temple held together. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have, and here it comes, He might have the supremacy. That's what it means to be firstborn. He might have the supremacy, verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That's an imagery of the temple. Verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds. God is going to rescue us from dark powers. That's our theme verse. We mentioned powers here in verse number 16. Immediately when you say powers or dark powers or rulers or authorities or principalities, which the Bible talks about, my head immediately goes to demons. That's the first thing that I immediately think about. But they would have thought about ideas. They wouldn't have first gone to demons. They would have first gone to ideas. Because the Bible is wisdom literature. Everything should be viewed through the lens of wisdom. Very, very important. It's the, it's the genre of wisdom. So when Solomon, the famous king of the famous son of a king, King David, when he asked God in a prayer for wisdom, God has says right before God says to him, ask for anything you want, and I'm going to give it to you. Well, listen, what would you have asked for if God would have given you a blank check? Hey, you anything you want. What does Solomon ask for? He asks for wisdom. And God says, way to go, Solomon. Because you've asked for wisdom, you're going to get everything else. In other words, everything starts from wisdom. The Bible is wisdom literature, and it should be viewed through the lens of wisdom. Wisdom is supreme. As Proverbs says, with all you're getting, get wisdom. Whatever you do, make sure you get wisdom. This is why Colossians says that Jesus Christ is the wisdom that has come down to earth and that we should seek wisdom and understand. So we view it through the lens of wisdom. Wisdom is the great ideas given to us by God. The key to biblical wisdom is to have our minds filled with the ideas of God. That is why Colossians 1.21 that I just read, after it said all of these great things about God, what did it say? It says that once you were alienated from God, why were you alienated from God? And were enemies where? 
in your minds, in your minds. This is why the Bible constantly talks about being reborn, renewed, or transformed in your mind. The Bible says that we should repent. The word repent is a mind word. So the Bible is talking about ideas far more than where I immediately go, and that is, I think, of demons. Not saying that demons don't exist. That's not what this message is about. This message is about their minds in Colossians would have immediately gone to the dark powers as being dark ideas, bad ideas, ideas that are not from God at all. Now, let's go to Exodus. God is rescuing from dark powers. How did God rescue the Israelites? And really, because God says he's educating the whole world on his name, how did God rescue the world in the story of Exodus that had become so famous? How did God do it? Well, there's a battle between two gods. Pharaoh considered himself a god, and then you have the god of the Bible, and they are doing battle against each other. Now, Pharaoh, just like all the gods... All the gods in that time, this is the way we viewed, this is the way they viewed the gods at that time when Exodus was written, that a god does whatever he wants when he wants. That a god, a god of gods like Pharaoh, Pharaoh gets to do anything he wants because he is Pharaoh. Pharaoh waits for nobody. Pharaoh gets what he wants when he wants and he gets it all right here, right now. And now you've got the god of the Bible who comes in and does battle against that thinking of Pharaoh. And God is going to tear down that thinking because that type of thinking leads to one place and it's what the Bible constantly calls Egypt, the house of bondage. That is death. It is bondage, that type of thinking. And God wants to tear it down. Now here is the God of the Bible. So God says, I'm going to set you free for the sake of my name. Matter of fact, everybody, uh, the book of Exodus really is called Names. I know we call it in our Bible, but in the Hebrew Bible, the official Hebrew title would be right there at the beginning of it in the first sentence, and it's about names. And God, what's a name? A name is about somebody's character. So God says, I want to teach you about who I am. I want to teach you about my name so the whole world can know my name. I'm tearing down these bad ideas because of my name, because it's not who I am. When, when Moses, very first with his brother Aaron, goes to Pharaoh, Pharaoh asks a very important question, who is God? And he never gets an answer. So God answers that in this story, exactly who is God. Now in Exodus 34, it is the most, I mentioned it a few months ago, the most repeated verse in the entire Bible. I know we think about Bible verses, but here's what the writers of the Bible said. We should repeat this verse more than any other verse. It's Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Why is that repeated more than any other verse in the Bible? Because it is so strikingly different from every, every other concept of God. Again, Pharaoh is a God. He does what he wants, when he wants, because that's what all the gods do. And yet here we have a God who says, no, 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 I'm not going to do what I want when I want. I'm going to be compassionate. I'm going to be gracious. I'm going to step back and let somebody else go before me. When somebody does wrong, I'm going to forgive. No God does that. I mean, 
That's the very image of a God. A God does what he wants when he wants. And when you make him upset or you get in his way and so he kills you. That's what every God does. And God says, I'm changing the concept. I'm changing the image of a God who actually steps back, will deny himself and allow somebody else to go. Or when somebody has done wrong, will forgive. This is unheard of. And that is why the story of Exodus casts this huge, wonderful shadow over the entire Bible, because it changed our concept of who God is and what we are supposed to reflect in the image of God. So what's happening here in this great grand story of the Exodus is God is pulling down the prevailing idea of life is found, the path to freedom is found in me doing whatever I want, whenever I want, right? Some people say, when I retire, I'm just going to do whatever I want, whenever I want, okay? But the God of gods, Pharaoh, sitting on the throne, did whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, and God is pulling it down. Jesus Christ, in the garden, the night he was betrayed, said, not my will, but thy will. So self-denial in the Bible is the path to freedom and the path to life. It is the wise path. This is what's going on. So let's talk just a second about creation, decreation, recreation, and what is going on in these signs of the Exodus and how God tears it down and then builds it back up. And then Dr. Lemke is going to talk to us. So in Genesis, God creates the world. How does God create the world? God speaks 10 times. Go back into Genesis chapter one and take notice that God speaks 10 times and that God starts in the heavens. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. And then God creates the heavens and he works his way down. Okay. What you have in Exodus in the decreation is that God also speaks 10 times through 10 signs and it starts way down in the waters and then works its way all the way up to the sun and the heavens. And the final thing is God says, let there be darkness. Total flip flop. Genesis, let there be light. That's how it begins up in the heavens. Let there be light. And in Exodus, it ends with, let there be darkness, and it's a reversal. Oh, now, what happens in the recreation? The recreation is Exodus chapter 20, where God, again, speaks 10 times to recreate with what? The 10 great ideas of our world, the 10 commandments. God speaks 10 different times in recreating. Now, we see in Genesis that Adam and Eve, in Genesis chapter 3, they can't handle the snake. But God says to Moses in Exodus chapter 4, you can handle the snake. Who's the snake? Pharaoh is the snake. You can handle the snake because I'm going to put my words in your mouth, my ideas in your mind, and you will speak them forth. And Moses, you will be able to handle the snake because you have ideas that have come from God. And my ideas are the path to freedom. It will set you free from the bondage of the enemy. Moses is an expert snake handler. Now let's take a look at the way the Apostle Paul describes this warfare of ideas in 2 Corinthians 10. For though we walk in the world, we do not fight according to this world's rules of warfare. The weapons of the war we're fighting are not 
of this world, but are powered by God and effective at tearing down the strongholds erected against his truth. Verse 5. We are demolishing arguments and ideas. Every high and mighty philosophy that pits itself against the knowledge of the one true God. We are taking prisoners of every thought, every emotion, and subduing them into the obedience of the anointed one. Dark powers are dark ideas. Serpents are deceivers with ideas that don't work. And Pharaoh is the great deceiver. He is the serpent. Adam and Eve couldn't handle the deception in Genesis 3. But God says to Moses, I'm going to put my ideas in your mind and you'll be able to handle that serpent. That is why Dr. King associates himself with Moses. Because Dr. King tore down bad ideas that were leading to hurt, pain, oppression, and bondage. And he fought against them. What did he say? We need to live out our creed in his great speech that all people are created equal. He was tearing down ungodly ideas. And he was, like Moses, an expert snake handler against deceptive ideas that will not work. That is the way that God is leading us to bring freedom to bondage. We need more expert snake handlers in our world. Pharaoh is like an addict. We see him like a god being an addict. Addicts become isolated. They become defiant like the gods do. They, they don't listen to what anybody is saying. They isolate themselves. They bring death. That's what the gods do. You read all these myths about the gods. They bring death. They're isolated. They're defiant. Addicts become like God, refusing to listen to anybody. They lie and they lie and they isolate themselves off. And God doesn't want that for us. God wants freedom. But the freedom is going to come through self-denial, not overindulgence. The wisdom of self-denial by taking up our cross. What does Colossians say? Colossians says it's by the power of the cross. Cross is self-denial. That is the path to destroying the works of darkness in our life. That's the wisdom of self-denial. Now, Dr. Lemke is going to talk to us about the fact that because we are so overindulged, like in a culture where there's so much money and affluence and we can overindulge ourselves, instant, instant gratification, get whatever we want, whenever we want, how much we want, that that has led us to a dopamine deficit. And once we get into a place of dopamine deficit, we won't even have the energy to live. We'll be in pain and misery all the time. How do we get back to a place of wholeness? How do we get back to a place where we feel like we want to live? Okay, so now we're thrilled to offer a section of an interview that I had with Dr. Anna Lemke, best-selling author of Dopamine Nation, chief of addiction medicine at Stanford University. I had a discussion with her. She's a part of this entire series. So each week you'll see a piece of this interview that I had with her. And today she's going to speak about this issue in America of overindulgence and the need for self-denial. So listen to what Dr. Lemke has to say. Is abstinence important? Abstinence is really important to resetting dopamine reward pathways. I would love to tell you that there's an easier way to do it, but there really isn't. 
Also, people always ask me, well, can't I just cut back a little? And I say, the problem with cutting back is that you won't reset dopamine reward pathways. You really need to abstain from your drug of choice long enough for those neuroadaptation gremlins to hop off the pain side of the balance and for neutrality or homeostasis to be restored, which is another way of saying for your dopamine firing levels to return to their baseline levels, at which point you can then take joy in more modest rewards and see with more clarity the true cause and effect of your drug use, which is really hard to do when we're chasing dopamine. Whereas if you just modestly cut back, you won't do that. You'll still be in that dopamine deficit state. Now, once you reset reward pathways by abstaining for long enough, and typically it takes about 30 days to reset dopamine firing, then you can decide whether or not you want to go back to using that drug in moderation. And you'll, you'll be in a clear sensorium to be able to do that and much more likely to be successful. Whereas if you don't abstain and you just cut back, much harder to do that. Mm-hmm. You had included in your book um, prohibition. And we often yes. talk about prohibition like it was just a terrible failure. But there were some good things that came out of it, like the fact that we didn't have alcohol so readily at our hands. I think you put in that alcoholism went down significantly during that time. Is that right? Yeah. So this is one of these little understood facts about prohibition. All we hear about is the speakeasies, the black market. Um, but what people don't appreciate is that in that decade in which the sale, importation, and consumption of alcohol was illegal, rates of alcohol-related liver disease decreased by half, rates of public drunkenness decreased by half, and those rates remained lower for decades after the, after the 20s, into the 30s, 40s, and even 50s. It's really only in about the last three to four decades that we've seen a huge spike again in alcoholism, especially among women and especially among young people. And why is that? Because of increased access. Access to drugs is one of the most important risk factors for addiction. If you have easy access, you're more likely to try that drug and more likely to get addicted to that drug. So everyone, what Dr. Lemke says, so important, the latest and the greatest science on your brain is that you and I need to deny ourselves from our drug of choice. Now, Jesus says it this way, take up your cross and follow me. Moses says it this way, we need to take up the snakes, the deceiving ideas in our world and in our lives and remove them from our lives. What is your drug of choice? How are you going to deal with your drug of choice this week? Is it alcohol? Is it drugs? Work? Porn? Gambling? Food? Shopping? Video games? How are you going to deal with your drug of choice this week in a wise way, in a biblical way, in a Christ-like way, in a scientific way? that will lead you on a path of wisdom towards life and freedom and joy. How will you deal with your drug of choice this week? Here's a great start. Join me in prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know 
the difference. In Christ's name, amen.